Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, January 6th. In today's news, Vice President Pence prepares for a final performance that will infuriate President Trump. The Trump dead-enders descend on D.C., and the lame-duck president finalizes a rule saying it's fine to kill millions of birds. But first, the big idea. Democrats closed in on control of the United States Senate with a stunning come-from-behind victory in one of Georgia's twin runoff elections, and they're leading in the second contest. These races could massively reshape the first two years of President-elect Joe Biden's term by giving Democrats a much clearer path to enacting their legislative priorities and confirming the president-elect's nominees. After swapping leads over the course of the night as results came in, Democrats Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff benefited from late counts in Democratic areas of the state. This gave Warnock an increasing lead over Republican Senator Kelly Loeffler as the final precincts were counted. Edison Research called the race for Warnock early this morning. Ossoff holds a narrower lead over David Perdue, whose Senate term expired on Sunday. Most of the remaining ballots, though, are believed to be from strongly Democratic areas. His campaign manager expresses high confidence that they will prevail. But the race has not been called, and Purdue's team says he is not conceding. But the Warnock win and the possibility of the second Democratic victory represent a historic upset in a longtime Republican bastion, signaling a clear shift in the political makeup of the state that Biden won nine weeks ago by about 11,000 votes. Warnock will be the first African-American Democratic senator ever from a former Confederate state. Ossoff, who's 33 years old, would be the youngest newly elected Democratic senator since Joe Biden won his upset in Delaware in 1972. These results, most of all, represent a forceful rejection of Trump in his final days, and they raise questions about the central role the president has vowed to maintain in the Republican Party after his departure from office in two weeks. If both Democrats end up winning, they would flip control of the Senate because Vice President-elect Kamala Harris will cast the tie-breaking vote. This could open the door for potential passage of legislation Democrats campaigned on over the past two years, including an expansion of health care, more COVID relief, and a comprehensive immigration overhaul. It could also prompt someone like Justice Stephen Breyer to announce his retirement because with Democrats in control of the Senate, they could more easily confirm a potential replacement. Watching returns come in from the White House last night, Trump live tweeted and repeatedly suggested that the votes that favored Democrats were somehow fraudulent, although, of course, he presented no evidence. Warnock, who grew up in public housing, is the senior pastor at Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church. That's the job Martin Luther King Jr. used to have. Warnock says that if he's in the Senate, he's still going to continue to preach. In a live-streamed speech around 1 a.m., Warnock declared victory and thanked his supporters. It was an emotional address. He noted that his 82-year-old mother had voted for him. She used to pick cotton in the fields, he said. But on Tuesday, she picked her youngest son to become a United States senator. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Wednesday. Number one. Mike Pence and his team have huddled for hours with the Senate parliamentarian. 
They've studied historical examples of other vice presidents who have presided over election results, and they've begun anticipating the ire of Trump, likely to come in the form of angry tweets in the aftermath of today's certification of the Electoral College vote before a joint session of Congress. Pence's team views the VP's role as procedural and limited, not unlike an umpire calling balls and strikes, but ultimately hemmed in by the rules of the game. The president's faulty belief that Pence can somehow overturn the results of the entire election is being fueled by agitators who are feeding Trump misinformation that he wants to hear. That group includes Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer, Peter Navarro, his top trade advisor, and Sidney Powell, a lawyer and Trump ally. Not a single serious or credible legal expert agrees with their analysis. White House sources tell Ashley Parker and Josh Dossie that during their weekly lunch on Tuesday afternoon, Pence explicitly told Trump that he does not believe he has the authority to block the congressional certification of Biden's victory. After we reported this, Trump issued an angry statement, falsely denying that the conversation even took place. Some advisors are proposing that Pence, while leading the Senate on Wednesday, make comments that allege irregularities while still doing his constitutional duty of certifying the results. That way he could show Trump he's fighting and supportive. Republican lawyer Cleta Mitchell, who was on that call with Trump this weekend to Georgia Secretary of State, has resigned as a partner in the D.C. office of the major law firm Foley & Foley. Her resignation came a day after the firm issued a statement saying it was concerned by her role in that call, which appeared to violate the firm's policies. Meanwhile, after that abrupt and unexplained resignation of the top federal prosecutor in Atlanta that I told you about yesterday, Trump yesterday bypassed the normal line of succession to install a temporary replacement from outside the office. This is an unusual and suspicious set of moves in the waning days of the administration, especially with what Trump's trying to do by using legal methods to pursue his political and electoral agenda. The president named Bobby Christine, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Georgia, to replace B.J. Pack, who he had appointed, on an acting basis, even as Christine maintains his current role. Longtime federal prosecutor Kurt Erskine, who's highly respected, would have otherwise assumed the job, but now it's a Trump loyalist. Oh, and get this. Trump accidentally shared the wrong phone number on social media for a Michigan legislator. The president was urging his followers to call and demand a vote to decertify the election results in the Wolverine state. But the 28-year-old who has that number that Trump tweeted out and put on Facebook has been deluged by calls from angry Trump supporters. He says his phone is literally broken because it won't stop ringing. Adding insult to injury, Trump was trying to sick his supporters on who he thought was the Michigan Speaker of the House, but the guy he named is actually the former Speaker. Back here on Capitol Hill, the Biden team, led by rival-turned-ally Amy Klobuchar, is prepared to force the dissenters who want to overturn the election results to debate all night long. They hope to dispose of the challenge as quickly as possible and prevent an ordeal from spreading out for days. Klobuchar, the Democratic senator from Minnesota, and her aides have distributed background and talking points to Democrats, and they've lined up swing state lawmakers to speak. Here's how the process is going to play out. A joint session will convene at 1 p.m. today to accept Electoral College tallies as they're called out alphabetically by state. If at least one senator and one House member question any single state's result, then the House and the Senate have to break up and individually debate and vote on that challenge. The House and the Senate both have to pass the challenge in order to invalidate the electors. That's, of course, not going to happen because Democrats control the House. 
And the Republican dissenters have said they're going to forge ahead. They plan to object to the tallies of at least three states, Arizona, Georgia, and Pennsylvania. Adding more could prolong the process to more than 24 hours. Yesterday, three more Republican senators, Tim Scott from South Carolina, Jerry Moran from Kansas, and John Boozman from Arkansas, announced that they oppose the effort led by fellow Republicans Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz to challenge the results. A dozen GOP senators have still not taken a position on what they'll do later today. Number two, the streets in downtown Washington this morning are mostly shut down to traffic. There's a significant police presence at every corner. The National Guard has been deployed, and the mood here is quite tense as day breaks. For nearly eight hours yesterday, pro-Trump speakers repeated election conspiracy theory after election conspiracy theory during a large rally by the White House. Shortly before 8 p.m., they danced to a part country, part rap song called Roger Stone Did Nothing Wrong. Stone, who was pardoned by Trump for lying to Congress about his Russia-related contacts and obstructing justice, appeared on stage in a pinstripe suit and a feathered fedora, swinging his hips to the tune. He then launched into a speech comparing the investigation into his wrongdoing to centuries of abuses and terror inflicted on African Americans. He claimed that he was the subject of a, quote, legal lynching and said Trump, quote, freed this slave, referring to himself. The almost entirely white crowd howled their support and started chanting his name. Someone else recently pardoned by Trump for lying about his contacts with the Russians, former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, also spoke during the rally. All day, the crowd ranted against the need for masks, vaccines, and precautions against the coronavirus. D.C. police have chosen not to enforce the district's mask mandate, despite the worsening surge here. Local law enforcement instead will focus on arresting anyone who is unlawfully armed. In all, D.C. police made five arrests yesterday. Park police made one. Charges included weapons violation and assault. We have dozens of journalists deployed around the city today. One of them reports that overnight, uh, around 10 o'clock, a group of about 200 Trump supporters marched to the police line that's surrounding Black Lives Matter Plaza. Punches were thrown at the line, and at least one woman was bloodied. And yesterday, a judge forced the leader of the Proud Boys, Enrique Tarrio, out of the city ahead of today's potentially volatile demonstrations that are being led by his followers. Tarrio is allowed to return only to the city for a court appearance on June 8th. He faces charges for burning a Black Lives Matter banner outside a black church and for possessing illegal magazines, gun magazines. Over at the Pentagon, leaders are bracing for a renewed attempt by the president, which they are fearful will happen today, to employ the military for political ends. Top officials answering a request by the D.C. mayor to deploy National Guardsmen in the capital emphasize that their troops will not carry firearms, use armored vehicles or helicopters, and that they will not receive backup from units in other states. This is a far more muted presence than in June after the Minneapolis police killing of George Floyd. The careful posture reflects the Pentagon's wariness in the final days of a presidency during which Trump has repeatedly strained the norms of a politically impartial military. Number three, amid all the drama, Trump is trying to jam through some significant regulatory changes during his final weeks in power. The latest is a last gasp effort to take another swipe at weakening enforcement of a 100-year-old law that protects migratory birds. 
Trump's team published a rule yesterday that spares industries and individuals from prosecution or penalties under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act if their actions, such as development or failure to cover tar pits, result in bird deaths. If prosecutors cannot prove that killing the birds was intentional, then the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service says under this new rule they will no longer enforce the law that's on the books. In May 2019, a United Nations panel determined that one million species face extinction, more than any other period in human history. Four months later, top ornithologists in government and academia reported that three billion birds have vanished in North America over the past 50 years. But that didn't stop big oil and their lobbying interests, including the American Exploration and Production Council, from championing this new rule that will make it more likely that more birds are killed off. The Trump administration's own private estimates show that industry kills an average of 709 million birds each year in America and up to 1.1 billion. Oil pits alone kill up to 1 million American birds every year. Conservation groups promised to sue to stop this Trump rule from going into effect a month from now, and they're calling on Biden to overturn it when he takes power, which the president-elect says he wants to do. The groups also say they're confident a legal challenge will prevail due to an earlier court decision that rejected the legal opinion on which the new rule is based. U.S. District Judge Valerie Caproni issued a blistering opinion back in August that quoted Harper Lee's famous novel after deciding in favor of state attorneys general and conservationists who sued the administration. The judge wrote, quote, It is not only a sin to kill a mockingbird, it is also a crime. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, January 6th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Stay safe today. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.